Highways Voices, the podcast of Highways News, your one-stop destination for all the news about the highways and transport technology industries, and our must-read daily newsletter. It's Highways Voices time again, and this week, as it's Road Safety Week... Well, we'll be talking road safety. People complying with the road, the the, the vehicle working well, the the road providing opportunities for people to make mistakes, because people will make mistakes. All of that needs to combine to ensure that actually we are driving down the number of people who are harmed on our roads. Four leading experts give their views on Highways Voices. Highways Voices, in association with partner organisations ITS UK, Elkrig, ADEPT, and the Transport Technology Forum. So that panel debate recorded at Highways UK on its way. But first, here's Adrian Tatum with his take on some of the news stories here on the Highways News website. And news from the highwaysnews.com website and newsletter this week. Six in ten drivers believe the condition of local roads they use regularly is worse than a year ago, with a similar proportion complaining that standard of pothole repairs is at best poor. New RSE data has found... Only 4% think the state of the local roads in the area has improved in the last 12 months, down from 6% for the last two years. The research conducted for the 2022 RSC report on motoring with over 3,000 drivers also showed that those believed their local roads had got worse had grown by 2% from 58% in 2021 and by 8% from 52% in 2020. While more drivers also think the condition of motorways and dual carriageways is worse than last year, the proportion is significantly lower compared to 2021. Issues with surface quality are the main reasons drivers say the state of their local roads has deteriorated. But Paul Bass, chief executive for the RSTA, said implementing a proactive asset management plan with treatment interventions at the right time saves around two thirds of the cost and importantly, around 75 percent of carbon generation. He said every pothole should be considered a failure. The Association Consultancy and Engineering, ACE, has published a new guide aimed at supporting consultancies in the highway sector. This, it hopes, will help them to decarbonise roads. The member-only document explores how businesses can turn challenges into opportunity as the UK continues its journey towards net zero by 2050. Outlining a key role for consultancies in supporting clients to decarbonise the design, construction and maintenance of roads, it also highlights the importance role in rethinking how transport systems are planned and operated to deliver improvements for mobility within increasingly tight emission budgets. And a further 4.3 million has been approved to make the case to government for significant investment in the Super Tram in South Yorkshire. Last month, South Yorkshire's leaders voted to take Supertram back into public ownership when its current contract with Stagecoach ends in 2024. Don't forget, we bring you news every day on the Highways News website. Sign up for our daily email into your inbox. And remember, we post our stories on LinkedIn and Twitter too. Highways Voices with Paul Hutton and Adrian Tatum. At Highways UK earlier this month, I was honoured to be asked to host the keynote session on the Thursday morning. And one of the things we talked about in that session was road safety. Four leading experts gave their views and it was such an interesting session to hear that I thought I'd share them all with you. The guests were Neil Gregg, Policy and Research Director at the Institute of Advanced Motorists, Mike Wilson, Chief Highways Engineer at National Highways, Susie Charman, Executive Director of the Road Safety Foundation, and Dave Conway, IMS and Road Safety Manager at FM Conway. And in order, I asked them, how do you plan, predict and prioritise safety across the road network when there are so many different aspects to it? I think for myself, being a 
representative of a membership organization of road users, it's about trying to bring the road users on side with you. Uh, and I think the road users, the drivers, the motorcyclists, the low-wide drivers, they're the last people that tend to get thought about in terms of uh, plans and projections and targets. We don't explain them properly to people who are actually out there using the roads every day. I think safety is actually sometimes not the highest priority for individual users. It's, it's, it's getting that journey done. They're worried about time in, in terms of travel and so on. But yeah, the simple message from us is remember the road user, remember road user behavior, because ultimately when it comes to safety, it is human behavior that causes most of the problems. So it's, a, it's two things. It's uh, what you do and it's how you do it as an organization and fundamentally what you believe. You know, National Highways, we have values of which one is safety. We have programs and plans in place to deliver uh, improvements in safety uh, for road users, for our own staff, and for the 45,000 people in our supply chain who are delivering. So it, it's about actually what you believe as an organization, what you do. And then once you've got beyond that, it's actually thinking about how you deliver improvements in road safety. So thinking about the system as a whole. So, you know, the safe roads is just part of that system. We need to be working at improving the safety of our roads, but we also have to think about vehicles. We have to think about um, drivers. We have to think about the post-collision response. And we have to understand the, the, the impact that we're having. So the analysis, the development of our understanding of the data, so that we're able to put our energy and effort into those things that will deliver the biggest impact. So I think for me, it's kind of different levels, really. And I think the first thing that we need to do as a, as a road authority is to really understand where we're trying to get to. And I think that's what's been really well articulated by our strategic road operators. So um, the, the vision for zero harm on the strategic road network and similar kind of goals, long-term goals and aspirations for the, the Welsh and Scottish road networks. What we don't necessarily have at the moment is similar, well-defined, long-term ambitions and goals for the rest of the roads. So the major road network in England and uh, local authority roads, it's a bit piecemeal. Some local authorities have fantastic long-term goals and visions, others don't yet have those. Um, so that's, that's your sort of first thing. Um, the, the second thing is knowing what your values are. I'm going to echo what Mike said, it's absolutely important to understand what what your value system is, making sure that everything is geared up to delivery of that. So if you've adopted the safe system, then all of your decision making has to reflect that vision and, and that, that approach. So what we're talking about then is, is saying, actually, if we look at our business cases for schemes, for example, we need to make sure that everything is adequately reflected in there when it comes to ultimately safe outcomes and so on. And then, of course, I would say that we have some fantastic tools um, and we work very much uh, with the IRAP methodology, International Road Assessment Programme methodology, which is all about proactive risk management across a road network. It's all the stuff that road authorities can actually manage and do something about, in theory, if money were um, unlimited. Um, so I think it's that sort of layering of um, your overall vision, your targets, measuring stuff that matters, and ultimately making sure that we can reach that long-term goal in an effective and prioritised manner. I think the important thing is that you need to have targets that you can achieve and systems and standards to achieve those targets. 
I think we spend too much time trying to tackle the individual motorist and the reality is you're not actually going to change that guy's behaviour that much. But if you can build roads that are safe, that are much harder to have a crash on, if you can have vehicles with technology and devices and aids that make it much harder to have a crash, or if you have a crash you're much more likely to survive it, then you can make a leap forward because I think we all know. So there was one in the paper a few weeks ago with the guy doing 90 in North Acton or whatever it was, had a crash, and that was the way he behaved. You weren't gonna change that behavior, but what was more significant is there were three occupants, one of whom died and one of whom was seriously injured, who weren't wearing seat belts, and one who was wearing a seat belt and survived with barely a scratch. So. Tackling the human isn't the way. If we can find technology that forces them to behave safely and makes it work, then we're going to achieve much more. Fascinating what you come up with about the, the behaviour and how you said there, Neil, that for the road user, safety isn't a priority, which is a baffling thing to think, but actually it's true. And I, I was hosting a, a panel session at an ITS UK event a few weeks ago where somebody came out with a brilliant comment that people drive like idiots because, well, they've never been killed in a road crash. You mentioned about the technology within the vehicle. And I question, you know, the, if you make things idiot-proof, then they just design better idiots. And one example is that your, your lights come on automatically. So there will be a whole generation of people who have never actually remembered to switch their headlights on. Then when it's foggy, because they don't switch their headlights on, the car does, but it's a bright day, but it's foggy, you get these people driving around without any headlights on. So is there a balance? And, and, and have you found when more technology is put on the vehicle, does it make the vehicle safer? or does it just change the way people drive? I think it obviously does make things safe. I mean, perhaps one of the questions you should ask this audience is who here thinks they're a safe driver, because everybody thinks they're a safe driver or above average driver, and never, no one ever admits being a bad driver. I think when it comes to technology, I think yes, we do need technology, we do need the better, safer roads, the safer cars, but we, we, we've missed out on educating road users how to actually use them. The number of times you hear about people getting a new car and switching all this tech off, uh, and that, and that negates the whole benefit of it. So we do need to have more education on that. And, and that is a missing link for us because I'm, I've, we've been doing a couple of studies, one with Southampton University on autonomous vehicles. We're also working on a project across Europe on uh, promoting ADAS systems. And, and it's quite simple. We did a survey. How do you find out about the ADAS systems on your new car? And the top answer was trial and error. No one had explained to them how to work these things. A lot of these things are passive. and, and you should never really know they're there until you need to use them. But I do think that driver training will actually help people to engage with these systems and, and, and get the full benefits, because we know the full benefits of introducing uh, all these new things on cars. That's been well quantified by TRL for many years. Uh, we could save tens of thousands of lives across Europe by fitting these new technologies. But if people switch them off or don't use them, then you know that, that's negating the whole benefit. So I think we do to have a discussion about the way we train our drivers. Uh, we do need to try and get that knowledge about ADAS systems into the driver training uh, world because at the moment, the only thing that learner drivers get taught is enough to pass the test. So unless you have some sort of government encouragement or some sort of legislative encouragement to include that, 
driving instructors will continue to train to pass the test. So yeah, I think technology is great, but you know, if you look at it, we've been flatlining on road deaths in the UK since 2013, uh, almost a decade now of pretty much the same level of deaths. Dipped during COVID, coming back up to that flatlining again. During all that time, new roads, new technology, why aren't we seeing that tremendous benefit in terms of reduced deaths on the road? Something isn't working out there in terms of the technology actually delivering. Yeah, I think part of the problem is, as you said, that people can turn it off. There will always be the guy who does 120 mile an hour in the 30 limit. There'll always be the guy who doesn't wear his seatbelt to do it, and he'll always turn off the tech. The simple answer is you don't make the tech turn offable. It really is as simple as that. If the car cannot speed, it doesn't matter what he does, and you'll get some guy who's going to rewire it and whatever, well, he'll do what he'll do. You won't change him by training him. People don't drink and drive, not necessarily because they are thinking that they won't get home, they won't be able to drive back from the pub, but they are scared to death of the penalty if they happen to get caught. So do we need stricter penalties like the old cattle rustlers in the, uh, in the Wild West that got executed because it was hard to catch them, so the, the penalty had to be so much it put you off doing it. Are, are the punishments for driving 120 in a 30 big enough to actually stop people doing it? Can I just take that quick? I, I don't think there is clear evidence anywhere that simply increasing penalties changes behaviour. Uh, it just doesn't work. I mean, look, look we've got six, six penalty points and a £200 fine now for using a handheld mobile phone it's still going up again. So you need to have the technology, the enforcement, the education, and the penalties all working together. At the moment, all we seem to get is the stricter penalties and fewer traffic police out there. So we can't think narrowly about this. We can't think it's, well, it's the driver's fault, or it's the vehicle fault, or it's the road's fault. We have to look at the system. And, uh, and, and absolutely, it's about lifelong training. I have twin boys who turned 17 last week and um, they are uh, very keen uh, on the day they got their provisional license to book their theory test. And, uh, and the youngest of the twins, much keener to, uh, to, to, to get his driving license, um, took his theory test on Tuesday. Monday night, he, went out, he and I were driving, and, uh, and you know, I was saying, so what does that sign? What does that sign mean? Uh, what's the sequence of uh, traffic lights? Bless him, he didn't know. Oh, he had a conversation on Tuesday morning about perhaps we'll postpone the test. But he passed on Tuesday afternoon. Now, my first reaction was, well done. My second reaction is, we need to make the test harder. But it's not just about 17-year-olds, um, it's about lifelong training. So how do we ensure that the motorists understand what they're doing, they understand the, the, the new vehicles that they're getting in, what the technology means, how to use the technology for their own safety, but focusing just on one element of the safe system will only get us so far. We are desperately uh, want you know, zero harm on our roads. Department for Transport published data for 2021 uh, last month, and there were 128,209 casualties on UK roads. 1,500 of them were fatals. Now, I was at dinner last night at the Highway UK Awards, and there were 500 people in the room. If you think about three times that number of people died on UK roads in 2021 
um, the tragedy that is associated with every single one of those casualties and fatals in particular. Um, we can't think narrowly. We have to think across the full spectrum of the safe system. But of course, you know, people complying with the road, the, the, the vehicle working well, the, the road providing opportunities for people to make mistakes because people will make mistakes. All of that needs to combine to ensure that actually we are driving down the number of people who are harmed on our roads um, and only by focusing on the whole system will we ever get to zero. It's absolutely fantastic that we have a national road operator whose chief engineer can so articulately um, put the challenge and the, 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 the stuff that we need to do to get there. I'm a psychologist by background. <laughs> And um, everything that I learnt during my, my undergraduate, which was quite a few years ago now, tells me that human beings are not very good. We are very limited in our capacity to make good decisions. We are very limited in our appreciation of risk. We have limited attentional focus. We, we can't pay attention to everything in our road environment. And we will make, we will make mistakes to err is, uh, is human. So we do have to design that system to accommodate those mistakes. To limit them, yes, but also to make sure that when people make mistakes, the outcomes are not fatal or serious. So from my sort of perspective, we're talking about vehicle systems and road infrastructure in particular that can make the difference between life or death. So if I'm going to crash, I don't want to crash into a tree. They've got really long routes. It's not going to move. I'm going to end up not very well off if I'm moving above about sort of 30 or 40 miles an hour. I'd rather have a clear roadside to come to a nice slow halt. I mean, it's, it's really not rocket science here. We're talking about passively safe roadsides. We're talking about junctions that manage crash forces. We're talking about median separation when you've got vehicles moving above 45 miles an hour. And we're talking about facilities for walking and cycling. We need to encourage modal shift. You've got to get people like me, middle-aged women with children, on a bike sometime. I'm not doing it anytime soon because I'm terrified, literally terrified. So we need lower speeds, separated facilities to get people like me on a bike. Let's, let's, let's kind of rise up to those values and challenges that we really face and take that systematic approach that Mike described that we all really believe in. We can eliminate death and serious injury on our roads. We know how to do it. We need a bit more money. We need a little bit more of a grown-up um, conversation about speed. That's really, really important here. And we need to stop blaming the driver, uh, blaming the road user. We've got to think about systematic ways of making sure that those situations don't happen. Goodness, there are so many different ways I could go here. <laughs> I want to just rewind just quickly to, we were talking about technology and the training of technology, and it made me smile because I was only talking about this on the podcast uh, yesterday in one of my interviews, was that when my wife picked up her new Mini, when the saleswoman was going around, she pointed to the e-call button and said, oh, that's the emergency button, don't touch it. And that was her training on e-call. And we've got this system in, mandated in vehicles that has got so much value to alert people. And, and I think when you break down where road, where, where road casualties happen, in towns, my understanding is it's largely pedestrians and cyclists, uh, very few on motorways, but when they are, they're usually quite serious because of the speeds. 
but then if you're driving it's usually on the a road that you know the country a road where you crash and you don't know where you are and uh, there aren't necessarily many other vehicles coming past to spot and alert emergency services so that's a perfect use of e-call are we using that piece of technology as well as we could be because surely you know even going back to an issue on smart motorways you see somebody broken down on a smart motorway you hit your e-call button and say and then the uh, operator knows exactly where you are, what direction you're going in, and therefore help can be summoned more quickly. Absolutely. And it comes back to that point about actually, you know, to, to the ability not to switch some of the technology in the car off, but also, so it's called e-call and it's called b-call. Some car manufacturers call it the concierge service. So I don't know quite what, um, what, what, what they're expecting to happen when you press the... the but, but the challenge is actually how do we help people to use the technology well? And we've been doing campaigns through Driving for Better Business um, in and around the use of e-call and b-call. Um, and, um, you know, the, the ability for people to, you know, to, to hit the button, to, to report an incident, or if they are in an incident, to get help quickly... Um, is incredibly important. So, so it's, it, it comes back to that training point about, you know, what briefing do people get when they get a new car? Are people getting the, the, the knowledge um, and the information that they need um, from the car manufacturer? Um, and if they're not getting it there, where are they getting it? And, um, and, and we have a part to play in that. We've all got a part to play in that. But, um, but you know, there is more and more of this technology coming, becoming available. How do we ensure that people are best equipped to travel on the networks? Vehicle technologies go way beyond e-call. And we've got to really have a think about um, how we systematically bring in those technologies. At the moment, we haven't ad- adopted European directives on this. There's a lot of misinformation out there, about, particularly about intelligent speed assistance. Um, it's not a limiter, uh, except in the press it is reported as a, a limiter. No, it's not. It's just going to beep at you to tell you you're going over the speed limit. Let's, let's, let's embrace these technologies. They're brilliant. I've got them on my vehicle. I bought my vehicle because of them. And, and we need to get people better informed about them. But we also need to make sure that every single new car in the UK has that technology and we haven't put that in place yet. So it's a really important point that the, much of the technology that you enjoy in your new car doesn't exist or is an expensive option when it comes to vans and HGVs. These, this technology is not standard. You know, you wouldn't think to buy a car now that didn't have emergency braking or even it's impossible to buy a car without it. But when, you, when you're coming to buy um, a van, or a fleet of vans, actually, you know, you have the option not to buy it. Um, how do we ensure that all of the vehicles on the network have the same technology um, and the same opportunity to save life? Well, I just want to jump in, Mike, and say that you've got your twin boys learning to okay. drive. And I found this, you know, ridiculous for myself. I have far more ADAS systems on my car than my children have on their cars which of course actually I've I'm a much more experienced driver I can often spot things that are likely to happen just because I've seen it happen so often before that they don't they need the the ADAS systems on their Ford Fiesta and Ford KA rather than on my car and yet the wrong people appear to have the best toys so to speak I think, I think that will change over time. You can't just flick a switch because, you know, we've got 35 million plus vehicles 
uh, a vehicle you buy today without all these features could last another 10, 12 years. So it's going to take some time for that to work its way through, absolutely. But yes, you're right. I think we do need to get that GSR2 into the Department of Transport. It's one of the top things that organizations like uh, TRL and PACT are working on, trying to get the government to adopt that. Because it, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever that in Europe, as of the 6th of July this year, every new car must have a range of these new techniques, uh, new technologies fitted, whereas in the UK, they don't. That just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. But there's another issue, is we're going to have a lot of these older cars working their way down the system, and they are going to end up with young people, so you do need to perhaps look at incentives to help reduce the cost of that. Technology can help reduce the cost of things like insurance through telematics, uh, encouraging that. Uh, and there's another issue that I've been aware of uh, with some international partners, which is that a lot of the, the, the really old, awful cars that we have here in the UK are ending up in Africa um, and, and, and not helping the international road safety position as well. So we need to be aware of that as well. But certainly on vans, I think it is, you know, it, it is a growing almost scandal that, that you know, a manufacturer is selling a car-derived van, but taking out some of the safety features. Um, but I think national highways have shown the way to go with that because it's a procurement issue. You know, if you specify that the people working for you have to have the latest technology in their in their trucks and their vans, as you do if you're driving a lorry into um, uh, London, for example, with vision standards. You know, procurement is a really big way of getting these things in quicker. Can I just uh, step back to what Susie was saying about having the ability to cycle? And I'm absolutely with you that my cycle to the railway station is on 60 mile an hour country roads with people driving like absolute idiots. It puts me off doing it. Mike, I know that of, of all the people to ask on uh, road engineering, your job probably features less walking and cycling to worry about because of what motorways are like, but how are we going to engineer this and you know is it a question of money is it a question of actually saying to the government if you took a little bit of the health budget and spent it on actually making it easy to easier and safer to walk and cycle you'll get all these other benefits that will will reduce the cost of the uh, of, of health care having that sort of holistic approach is probably a bit utopian but how are we going to engineer in the as quickly as possible making it easier for people to walk and cycle we go very narrow and 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 um, into specific issues but I think actually to, to answer that question we have to think really broadly you know you were talking in the session before about the environment and how we you know hit our zero carbon uh, t targets um, and one of the reasons is that um, we need to get people out of their cars and into um, uh, other forms of transport. Uh, you know, cycling, walking being you know, two of the most important. There is also the health benefits of, of, of walking and, and, and cycling. And when you start thinking about building your um, business cases for investment in, in cycling, and I agree with Susie about the segregation, um, particularly on high-speed roads, and, and high speed, I'm thinking not 60 or 70, but actually from a cyclist perspective, you know, 40 is very quick. And the energies involved are extraordinary. So actually how you build your business cases, thinking not just of the safety benefits, because some, traditionally we, we identify our safety benefits based on a number of accidents that have happened in the past. 
So we have to think about the likelihood of accidents happening, but also thinking about the, the wider benefits, the wider societal benefits that come from people coming out of their cars, using their feet, either in pedals or, or, or on, on pavements. It comes back to the, you know, what's the business case? But, but from an engineering perspective, it's relatively straightforward. It is a footway, it is a pavement, but actually what you have to then think about is actually how you make that footway and pavement acceptable to people who are not just on a Sunday afternoon cycling, but this time of the year are cycling to the train station in the cold and the wet and the dark. And how do you then build something that is it's easy to use, um, is welcoming, it feels safe and is not only... Um, and then you can start thinking about actually building a really great cycle walking network to complement a, a good road network. So a big challenge here is that our um, business cases and economic appraisal are all based on historical collisions at the moment. And we're trying to change that. We're trying to base it on risk. Um, so what you don't get in historical collisions is the people who were too scared to go cycling, like me, um, who were too scared as an older driver to go out in the dark because their sight's failing and we've removed all the lighting from junctions and stuff. So what we, what we need to be thinking about is um, equitable access and inclusiveness as well in here. And taking a proactive risk management approach allows you to do that for the first time. The other thing that I would say is that we need to have a really, really deep think about the function of our roads. Who, who's the road for and what kind of movement should it support? Because if we understand road function, we can then start to set appropriate speed limits for the sort of movement that is um, expected on that road. So motorways, high speed, brilliant. That's, you know, that's what that road is for, is from getting you to A to B really fast. But the peripheral parts of the network, um, on the strategic road network, the A roads that go through villages and towns, and equally the local authority roads that go through villages and towns, do we really have to be having a national speed limit of 60 miles an hour? Because actually that prohibits anybody from walking or cycling or doing the other stuff. So if we, if we have a real good think about the function of our roads first, we can set our functional aspiration for that road, we can then see if you can support that with um, safe movement at the speed at which we desire for that type of road, um, and then we know what we can do about the engineering facilities. For walking and cycling in particular, it's either got to be below 20 miles an hour for a safe system, or you've got to have segregated facilities. It's really, you know, quite black and white in some senses. Can I make one quick step change just because of the audience that we have here and the room that we are, which is that we're not just here to pontificate about drivers on the road network, but actually we have room, a room full of people that are actually building roads, maintaining roads, upgrading roads. And you've got people in our industry that go to work in the morning or in the evening and don't come home at the end of their shift because something has happened to them in their office, which is a set of roadworks. So can I just spend a, a couple of minutes just talking about how we make road workers safer and what we're doing and, and, and what more we can do to do that? I think you're absolutely right. And, and actually just yesterday I was asked to comment on a new proposal by Bayer Scotland that they are going to give um, cameras to each of their operatives to record what's going on in the roadworks because there's been so much abuse, so much things thrown at them. And this is, we're talking about Highland rural Scotland here, we're not talking about the Midlands or anything. So I, I was shocked to hear that it's got so bad that they're actually giving body cams to road workers. 
So yes, that, that, that needs to change, that is clearly unacceptable. But I think what, what has worked, I think, is some of the things National Highways have done to personalize that. If you're, if you're delayed, if you're held up by roadworks, the only person you get to blame is the road worker. Whereas it's not their fault, it might be you know, something that happened in, in the mix of the tarmac, it might be the way the contract was put out, it was the, you know, the lack of money for pothole repairs, whatever. But the people who get the blame are the road workers. I, I think per, personalizing them, the uh, My Daddy Works Here campaign for National Highways, I thought was very good uh, at actually getting the point over that this is a place of work. But certainly, you know, when it comes to the fact that you're giving out body cams to people working in, in roadworks, that, that really is, you know, it, it just shows how bad it is. And I have, they have my full sympathy, but I don't think it's an easy, easy solution because you know, congestion is on the rise again, people do get frustrated, and at the moment, the only way they can vent that frustration, unfortunately, seems to be by shouting at road workers, but, you know, that, that does need to stop. Mm -hmm. I think the average speed cameras through roadworks went a long way towards helping the situation, but I've noticed in recent years they're actually counterproductive because what happens is those cameras are up there, 724, and the motorist just gets used to doing 50 or 60 through them all the way. And maybe we need to look at having a different speed limit when there are actually people on the road working, rather than just having 10 continuous miles of everyone being annoyed and slowed down. You know, if we could actually say, no, there are really guys out there working, where they're working, where they're next to the road, it's a 30 limit, and then you can go back to your 60 when you pass the people. So two things. Um, the, the first one is, um, is a shameless plug. So a third of all accidents that happen on the network involve somebody driving for work. Um, it is the, the most dangerous thing that most of us who sit in offices do. Um, uh, so um, if you've not heard of driving for better business, then please Google it, um, because not only will you save um, money, lower insurance, uh, lower um, uh, uh, costs, greater productivity of your teams, greater engagement of your teams, you're actually going to save lives. So please ha do have a look at Driving for Better Business. It's a campaign that National Highways supports um, and uh, there are some great testimonials of the, of the amazing uh, savings that people have made, both financial and in terms of life, um, uh, through adopting uh, better policies, better training uh, for, for their fleet. Um, the second point I'd make around roadworks um, is that um, we need to make roadworks as safe as we can, but we need to also minimise the number of them, because fundamentally if the roadworks are not there, then there's nobody um, at risk. We need to work really hard at, um, at eliminating the need for roadworks, you know, building better quality roads that last longer, so we don't need to maintain them as often as possible. Thinking about in the construction how they're going to be maintained and operated without actually going onto the road itself. We then need to think about um, uh, how we then brigade activities together so that we're actually reducing the number of roadworks rather than you know, the classic um, advert about, you know, you've dug a hole, can I fix my telecoms or my gas or whatever, how do we brigade activity better to ensure that we're reducing the, the, the frequency of roadworks? Um, and then it's absolutely about segregation. It's about segregating uh, live traffic, which is the biggest risk to road workers from, from the workers themselves. Um, 
and, um, and we have huge challenges about incursions and there's great work being done thinking about how we reduce the number of incursions, people who accidentally enter the works or actually enter the works deliberately because they believe that actually they might save themselves some time. Um, but, um, but again, you have to think broadly. Um, um, but ultimately, when the, when the road workers are there, we have to keep them segregated and we have to keep them there for as little, po little time as possible. That's Mike Wilson, Chief Highways Engineer at National Highways, rounding off that panel discussion that we had at Highways UK. You also heard Neil Gregg of the Institute of Advanced Motorists, Susie Charman from the Road Safety Foundation and FM Conway's Dave Conway. Now, before we go, there's just time for... Adrian's accolade. And my accolade this week goes to Reflow, provider of an award-winning field management software for construction, highway, civil engineering, rail and landscaping. It's doing its part for men's health this November by participating in Movember. Their team aims to raise £500 by the end of the month, as well as raising awareness for the disproportionate number of men losing their lives to suicide within the industries they serve. You can find out more at reflow.co.uk. We're the winners of my accolade this week. So grow those tashes big. That's it for today on Highways Voices. Thanks for listening and we'll talk next week. Highways Voices. Join us again next week for more insights from those that matter in the industry. 